So this morning, uh, we obviously have the famous story of Mephibosheth, so since everybody knows it, we can just skip past the recap, right? Everybody's very familiar with Mephibosheth. He's a great guy. Uh, So our story starts with King David sitting around saying, look, is there anybody left from Saul's household? Because for Jonathan's sake, I want to be faithful to them. So, a whole lot of backstory here. So David is the king of Israel. How did he become king, you ask? Well, thanks for asking. Uh, He became king by usurping the throne from this guy named Saul. And so these two figures are the ones you know from the famous David and Goliath story. So David goes and and kills Goliath, right? And then King Saul loves him for that. But then pretty quickly that relationship really sours because Saul was super wary of how popular David was and thought he was going to supplant him and take over his throne, which he did. And so for years, Saul hunted down David and tried to kill him. And so for years, David was on the run, on the lamb, trying to run away to survive. And so now, David and Saul are different families, which is not technically true because David did marry Saul's daughter in a political marriage, so he's his son-in-law then. Uh, But... It doesn't matter for our purposes because how does royal succession work? Well, a king passes the throne on to his son, who passes it on to his son, who passes it on to his son, and so on. And there ain't no room for stepsons in there. So, when David takes the throne, he's changing dynasties. He's taking the throne away from the house of Saul. And, re, and, and moving it to the house of David. A little bit of scandal going on, especially for those who were supportive of Saul and thought that he was really the rightful king and that it was taken illegitimately. So let's make this even more complicated. David's best friend is Saul's real son named Jonathan. So that would be David's brother-in-law. And the two of them are inseparable. They are great friends, which makes it real awkward when dad starts trying to hunt down and kill David. Uh, It makes family reunions presumably quite uncomfortable. I would, (laughs) more so than they already are. Um, And so, not yet King David makes this pact with his best friend, Jonathan, and says, look, if Jonathan, if you would die, I will take care of your family. Or rather, it's actually more open-ended than that. It's probably like more, I won't massacre your family. Uh, and so here in our story today, now King David is trying to make good on that promise because his friend, best friend, Jonathan, has indeed been killed in a battle. And so David's like, hey, is anyone from Jonathan's lineage still alive? Which, of course, begs the question, wait wait one second, why would not everybody be alive? And now some died in battle, sure. But there's also rumors circulating around that maybe King David kind of put out a hit on them and offed them to get rid of political rivals. So he genuinely doesn't know if anybody's still alive because he kind of killed them all. 
so for this story, <clears throat> for our story today, you can read it in a couple different ways. You can read it either optimistically or cynically. So optimistically, over here, we've got on the positive side, David makes this promise to his best friend, right? He wants to take care of his friend's descendants uh, since his friend's no longer alive, being faithful to his friend. It's very, uh, a very nice gesture, right? On the cynical side, a little different. You've heard the phrase before, right? Keep your friends close and your enemies closer, Right, so King David wants to know if anybody is still alive. I wonder why, because they're the people who used to be on the throne. They're the people who might challenge his throne. And so once David finds somebody, he moves him. And we're we're talking about, he was living, we don't know exactly where it is, but think maybe the distance from here to Seattle, right? And they don't have cars. So far enough away that he's not particularly under... King David's control. It's far enough that some stuff can be going on and King David not know about it. So, you know, it will be really, really nice to Mephibosheth and just move him right here to Jerusalem where conveniently he happens to be somewhere I can keep watch over him 24-7 and make sure he's not planning a revolt against me. So, in, in reality, though, it's probably kind of both of these, both the optimistic fulfilling this vow to a best friend and this cynical trying to shore up his political future and, and tie off any potential loose ends that might challenge his throne. So David sends for this man named Ziba. He was this, uh, the head servant of the household of Saul, so remember, Saul's son is Jonathan. Jonathan's son is Mephibosheth. So Saul would be his grandfather, right? So head servant of King Saul's household. So big operation. And David's like, is anybody still alive? Ziba says, yes, I know just the guy. His name is Mephibosheth. You have to learn how to say it. And it just so happens that his feet don't work. Because... Years ago, when Mephibosheth was only five years old, there was this tragic accident. So Saul and Jonathan were both out on the battlefield, and they were both killed in the line of duty. And the nurse who was taking care of Mephibosheth back in, the, back in their home learned of this. And she was terrified. She thought that they were going to come for Mephibosheth next, try and wipe out the entire line. And so she's really concerned about trying to keep his safety. And so she picks him up and tries to flee with him. But in her haste, she drops him. And never again for the rest of his life will he be able to use his legs. Which also disqualifies him to be king. So does lessen the threat he might provide to King David, but he's still the person who at least his supporters would say he's the one who should be on the throne because he's the one who's directly in the line of succession. And so David decides to bring this person before him. He drags him before him from uh, 50 some odd miles away and Mephibosheth is terrified. He's Because he, he thinks he's going to be murdered, right? Just like David's, David allegedly did to his brothers. To which David said, don't be afraid. I made a promise to your dad. You're going to live here with me. I'm going to give you back this land that was Saul's. 
and remember, he's king, so lots of land. Uh, so here's lots of land for you. And then, of course, you're going to eat at my table every day. And then David turned to Ziba, remember our chief, uh, our head servant of Saul, and said, you're going to be Mephibosheth's servant. You're going to be the manager of this land and take care of the entire household and, and you're going to take and you and your ridiculous number of kids and servants are going to take and till and cultivate and harvest this land to bring in money for Mephibosheth. And so for the rest of his life, Mephibosheth stayed in what, at least to me, seems like this very glorified house arrest in Jerusalem. Though, to be fair, it does say that David treated him like his son. So maybe it's like his son that he's super, super suspicious of. I don't know, something like that. So I struggled with this story when I was trying to write the sermon. Not so much understanding it. That's pretty straightforward enough once you get all the background stuff. But in thinking through, as in terms of a sermon... What can we get out of this story that we might productively be able to grow from? What might we be able to make of this story? And so first, to be frank, I think that there's something that's to be said about just breaking down and understanding this story that's part of our Christian tradition that we never hear in, especially in church, but very little, do very little with. It's, it is itself a positive good to actually look at this story that we ignore so often and don't talk about, don't learn from, and actually understand what's in this book that we claim is sacred. But second, I think this story does do a couple of additional things for us. So first of all, it complicates this image of David. Because isn't it true, uh, just in general in life, that we flatten out complexities in our lives? So, like, for example, uh, I don't know, say World War II or something, uh, U.S. completely good, Germany completely bad, uh, Japan completely bad, right? It's just this flat, one-dimensional just label. No nuance, no, uh, you know, somewhat, somewhat, none of that. We just flatten out into this one, just this one label. And so in our tradition, we have this very robust tradition around King David uh, as the unequivocal good guy, He's the good guy. He was, as the saying goes, a man after God's own heart. And he was the ideal king that all future kings should aspire to be like. And we even see that same impulse within the Bible itself. So we're reading from 2 Samuel today, a set of stories um, in the books called Samuel. There's basically an entire parallel set of stories in the books called Chronicles and telling King David's story there as well, but telling them with a different spin, a different point of view, uh, different things that the author wants to get across to the viewers. And so this author of Chronicles very much holds this view that David's the best. David can do no wrong. And so very notably, the chronicler flattens out that narrative. Um, the Samuel narrative gives us all these ups and downs and all these twists and turns and, and David becomes this very complex character. And, uh, and frankly, in that narrative, um, David isn't that good of a guy. Um, doesn't come across very well. But we would never know that if we read Chronicles. 
because it just conveniently happens to leave a lot of that stuff out and just paints David as this pristine, almost romantic version of what the ideal king would be. And isn't that something we do as well with a lot of stuff when we're thinking about things, just flatten it out. The complications, the grays, that's just too messy. Let's make the world black and white. Let's just simplify things so that it's easy to understand and we can move on with it. And it's make things clear cut rather than ambiguous. Here's another point of interest with this story. If you were here last week, you'll remember we looked at the story of uh, Jesus healing a blind man And we talked about disability, and we noted that at the beginning of that story, the blind man was just acting as a prop for Jesus to do his thing, to make his point. And here, even though Mephibosheth is an actual character, he has a grand total of one line of being terrified, this, again, disabled figure is simply David's pawn. Why did David want him there? Well, so he could fulfill a vow. So, basically it's all about the vow between David and Jonathan, and Mephibosheth is just there because he's the object that can fulfill the vow. Or or take the cynical reading, for example. David wants to keep Mephibosheth close to make sure he doesn't start a revolt. So in this case, rather than being this distinct entity in and of himself, Mephibosheth just becomes a stand-in for the house of Saul. And notice another thing that's similar to last week. of uh, The author makes these metaphorical points with talking about these disabilities. And so last week we saw that this blindness of the man that Jesus healed was really symbolic of the blindness of humanity to the truth that Jesus brings. And His blindness was instrumentalized. It was made into this metaphor to get to the quote-unquote real point. The narrator didn't care at all about like the actual blindness, the actual blind man. And so in this narrative too, the narrator shows us the quote-unquote crippled Mephibosheth and is doing so signaling this broader motif in this story arc of David showing the house of Saul becoming crippled and impotent and David's line being strong and vibrant. And so again, just like last week, we're not caring at all about the actual disability, about the experience of somebody with the disabilities. We're just saying, oh, it'll be helpful to make a good point and utilizing it as a metaphor. But notice that our our question of if we're optimistic, if we're cynical reading this, it doesn't have to be an either-or. It doesn't have to be an either-or. It can be a both-and. And, you know, we do this throughout other stuff as well. And so, for example, uh, we were talking World War II. So, uh, U.S. foreign policy after World War II, the Marshall Plan, some folks are familiar with that. We've got Europe devastated in ruins, right? And the U.S. gives this boatload of money to 18 European countries to help rebuild. It's great. It's wonderful humanitarian aid. Wonderful humanitarian aid, a great thing to do to help out our neighbors. 
and is basically entirely self-serving for the U.S. to rebuild the countries, rebuild economies to trade with, to fight off communism. Basically, there's a lot of self-serving stuff that goes into this and is also this great humanitarian aid. And so it's not an either-or, it's a both-and. And in a similar way, I think, when we look toward David's generosity toward Mephibosheth in exactly that same kind of way it's kind of a both and David loved Jonathan he was his best friend he wanted to help him fulfill that vow to take care of his family and it doesn't hurt to have any potential rivals under your thumb and right in your backyard and you can supervise them 24-7. Know that they aren't starting something under your nose. But, and here's the irony of the whole thing. The irony of the whole thing is that David, by imagining Mephibosheth is a, is a danger to him, is a danger to his throne, he actually makes that happen. So later, uh, King Absalom, uh, excuse me, Absalom, King David's son tries to take over from him. He, David has to flee to save his life, leaving who? Mephibosheth, with nobody lording over him. And he's like, well, you know, since you put it in my mind, maybe I should bring, take over the kingship for the house of Saul again. And it's precisely seeing him as a threat that makes him a threat. But doesn't all this, all this stuff, say something about the human condition as well? Doesn't it say something about how complicated our motives are? Right? So often we tell each other and ourselves these very simplistic stories about ourselves and take out those nuances, those complicating factors, those shades of gray to make it black and white instead. And we stop taking into account the full range of complicated factors that inherently make up human will and human motivation. So I guess uh, this week, may you observe in what way is your life more complicated than that story, that narrative you tell others. May you observe and be honest with yourself and with God about the complexity of your motives, your acts, your desires. And may you see where God is, even in the midst of these complexities, faithfully standing by you, even when you are honest with that. May it be so.